So there was this exacting slap in the face to many women who have made incredible strides to affect some substantive change in artificial intelligence as many of the harms even came to light. So this slap was the recent New York Times article that now a lot of the work of prominent women like Fei-Fei Li, Timnit Jibru, Kate Crawford, Joy Buwalumini, as well as Meg Mitchell, and many, many other women who are too numerous to mention. And it came off the same week of the drama of OpenAI as Sam Altman, with the help of Microsoft, securing Reigns uh, back into the company that had fired him five days before. And it was also the very week where Mia Dand, who is an incredible force in the industry, had just organized a very important gathering of women in AI ethics. It was a five-year anniversary that not only celebrated the 100 most brilliant uh, women in AI ethics this year, but also tried to address the issue of attempting to uh, bridge the gap in AI. As much of our technology progresses. So what we're seeing is this increasing polarization in an industry, despite all the work that women, scientists, engineers, policymakers, professionals in AI continue to do, there will be this continuous lack of recognition and respect for their work and also their voices within industry and within media. So one week, in the one week that Sam Altman was man of the hour, he drew praise in media. He also came, he, he also drew a lot of negative scrutiny. Uh, but two female board members who were just doing their jobs to challenge the decisions that he was making were effectively ousted from Microsoft. So there's this contentious debate about women for with respect to women who are within the AI world and all of us who are actually looking in about this continuous lack of respect for the culmination of work that's been done by women, by the non-binary community, and this perpetual underrepresentation of these critical voices as, as, you know, a lot of this work has progressed. So, and it comes at a time when everyone is starting to question whether or not this very technology AGI that's coming to the fore, it has significant implications on where we are as human beings and, and what it can do to us at the end of the day. So I reached out to a friend of mine and she's here today. Her name is Theodora Lau. She's the founder of Unconventional Ventures. It's a public, she's also a public speaker and an advisor. She just recently uh, co-authored The Metaverse Economy, and she also wrote Beyond Good and is also the host of One Vision podcast on fintech and innovation. And through her work, she actually explores the intersection of financial services, tech, and humanity. And she deserves so much praise for, for the amount of work that she's been doing in the industry. And I welcome her here today. Hi, Theo. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's Well, one of the reasons I had you have you on is because of the recent blog post that you wrote on LinkedIn, and it was called Where Are the Women? And I want to talk about that today because it, it, it kind of cuts to the core and I guess anger for all of what's happening in this world. So 
So I'm happy to to have you here today. So let let's dive in. First of all, let let's not talk about Sam Altman, but let's talk about the fallout of Sam Altman because I don't want to give him any more press. So Tasha McCauley and Helen Toner were two board members, and they, along with Ilya Skibber, who was the chief scientist and co-founder of OpenAI, advocated for the removal of Altman. Um, Afterwards, they had not only ousted them, they had installed a, a little bit more of a compliant board with the likelihood, I guess, the likelihood of, of actually instigating a, cue to, a coup that actually happened in that week to be less likely in the future. So tell me, tell me your thoughts on all of this and what, what went through your mind when you saw these events happen? Yet again, I think those were the literally two words that came to my mind. I think for a lot of us who have been watching how the tech sector has been evolving, not just this year, but even years before this, we're all very familiar with the tune of, oh, we're not here. We're not at the table. What makes this hurt more than others is what it means. Now, there is no lack of hype that talks about the future belongs to artificial intelligence and how the technology will change everything that we do, how we work, how we earn a living, et cetera, et cetera. For something to be transformative that will impact everyone on the planet, you can't say that this is a shared future unless people are represented at the table when decisions are being made, when we are represented, when we think about what the technology will do, who would it serve, who we might hurt in the process. You need those voices. Now, when you replace the two women on the board with others, um, I believe someone quipped online that that looks more like a Davos panel than a board. That's immediately what came to my mind is, okay, so this is going to be yet another demonstration of leveraging technology for self-serving interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's plain simple than that. They had, there was this quote from Meredith Whitaker, who you know as the, the president of uh, Signal, the messaging app. And she looked at this open AI debacle and she doubts that even, even after this, if they do decide to add a single woman or a person of color, that it won't really affect any meaningful change. And she said, like, unless the expanded board is able to actually genuinely challenge Altman and his allies, packing it with people who tick off the, these demographic boxes to satisfy a call for diversity is nothing more than diversity theater. And she was saying, and this is important for you as well, because you live in the U.S. And she says, we're not going to solve this issue that AI is in the hands of a concentrated capital at, at mm -hmm. present by simply hiring more diverse, diverse people to fulfill the incentives of concentrated capital. You're actually not doing anything more. In the U.S., you are considered a capitalist country. You're not considered Canada, who is very much a social slash capital, capital uh, company, a uh, country. How do you think, can you reconcile the need 
to to do right by technology that that's critical to all our futures um, in a world where where capital runs supreme. It will eventually. It's not going to be any time immediate. I think. Um, I think it's time we acknowledge that it as painful as it sounds. Now, when we went through the period of COVID, we thought that was going to be an event that will level set the playing field at least a little bit, right? That everyone is forced behind the screen and perhaps, perhaps it would have been a moment of reckoning that will change how we work. And that was actually when Beyond Good was written. It was during COVID. Unfortunately, I think we all saw how things have played out in 2023, the entire year. Funding for women is less than how it was before. Funding to underrepresented founders is dripping to none. And against that backdrop, now we have people that are suing companies that said, oh, you should not have such and such DI program because now you're discriminating against, I guess, the rest of the people. Never mind that, you know, you're just writing $10,000 checks here and there is breadcrumbs, literally. So I, I think what's been playing out is people have been and always have been comfortable with, with the boys club, with the status quo. Not saying that there's not enough people who want to change. The problem is the mass majority of it do not see the intention to have to change because it has been working. And, and that is one big problem when we think about AI. Because if you look at how a lot of these tools are being developed, who is behind the developing of these tools? Who are these tools serving and what are they based on, right? A lot of these tools are based on the Western culture. Let's just be honest. The people that these tools will benefit against are people in the Western culture. What about the global South? What about people who do not use English as a predominant language in what they do and how they work? When you start creating this divide, and this technology has the ability to even increase the divide against that backdrop. You have the same old club that mm -hmm. has benefited from technology and the implosion of capital to fuel these technology for years and years and years. I don't think you need a crystal ball to see what's going to happen. Well, I think so when you talk about who does it serve, I mean, like apart from AI, like the, the system has always benefited those who actually created them. And you know, when it, when it comes to, um, let's say, even trying to get a loan, trying to get a mortgage, trying to be hired, those rules are already embedded in the very systems that, that have created them. So even if you didn't have a model, you had decisions that, that were part of the processes and baked into the way people sold or sold them or um, how they actioned it within the company. So, so, you know, trying to make change means that you are willing to upend a company's years and years and years of, of processes. Are people willing to do that? And data too, right? So think about an easy example, redlining, which technically speaking is not allowed anymore. The problem is the result of that redlining practices are manifesting themselves in neighborhoods, right? That have been disadvantaged. People, homeowners who had been discriminated against in the past, all of that data set 
is now being used to fed into AI machines that create lending decisions, right? So yes, even though the, from a technical perspective, people are not supposed to discriminate anymore, but when your model is based upon data from the past that is biased, that discriminated against certain populations, unless you know to go back in and find ways to change it, to unbias it, if you will. And there are companies that do that. By the way, one of my favorite is actually headed by two women founders. So unless you actually intentionally go in and try to fix it, this will keep going and going and going. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so let's, let's turn a little bit to the New York Times, our favorite publication, maybe not. They came out with an article like shortly after, it's probably, a, what, a week ago? And so this is their year-end list, and this was the headline, who, the who's who behind the dawn of modern artificial intelligence. And so there, there are subhead that before chatbots exploded in popularity, a group of AI researchers, tech executives, and venture capitalists had worked for more than a decade to fuel AI. And what did we see? All of them, first of all, not one single female on it, and more predominantly, a whole slew of white men, predominantly from Silicon Valley, carefully curated, by the way. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if the author was actually a white man, maybe, maybe it didn't matter, but he definitely was a man. And it fueled a lot of anger in Twitter from Kara Swisher. I, I heard her loud and clear on Twitter and many women who actually saw this list and thought, why the hell is this happening today? I don't know. Well, why is a good question? What? When I saw it, it reminds me a lot of things that we've been seeing in fintech. There is a striking parallel. It's like deja vu for us all over again and again and again and again. A lot of the who's who's list is always predominated by, by men. I think at least as a whole in the industry lately, I've been seeing at least one woman on the list. <laughs> Just like, you know, the panels that we always see, we always see a woman moderator. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, there's representation. It, I'll tell you an interesting story. So recently I'm trying to, to do a uh, year-end blog post. It's just basically talking about the industry in 2023. So I had tried to experiment with one of the Gen AI tools because everyone is saying, oh, you know, Theo, you have to try it. You have to try it. Okay, fine. So I actually tried it. And this is a prompt that I use. Fintech founders talking over predictions for the new year. I use that prompt. Guess what did the picture look like? One guess. It's just men. And, and I'm happy to share it later. Men. I generated four pictures using the Meta AI. All four pictures are men with beautiful hair, rolled up shirts, sleeves, suits, talking over drinks, and a beautiful wooden table. Like, all right, maybe it's just Meta. Let me try a different tool. I tried Bing. AI, which is powered by open by ChatGPT in the background. Same thing. Beautiful pictures of men with beautiful hair. Young men. Mm. Not one single woman in both of those tools that I use. Now, one would say, well, you know, the tool's biased. The tool's not biased. The tool does what data is being fed to the tool itself. And then you go back and question 
What about the data? And then you go back and think about, well, how often do you see mentions of female founders in tech, mm -hmm. AI, fintech, and what have you? How often are they acknowledged? How often are they quoted? It's been quite a few years now. I started reading through headlines of newspapers. I'm like one of those old school people that still read newspapers. If you pay attention, you will see that oftentimes when they talk about businesses, news, you will see the name of male CEOs on the headlines. And most often, you will see a female banker, a female leader, and their names are normally not there. And so I started, this was when Twitter was still working and functioning. I started a hashtag that says, you know, what's her name? She has a name. Hashtag, she has a name. And, and I think all of these little things, right, it fuels the whole space that we are in that oftentimes men are the ones who found companies. Men are the ones who head up companies. And their yeah. names are there. They're quoted. People go ask them for things. They are recognized. And I would have people come and tell me, well, you know, but that person is not known. That's why we don't use her name. I'm sorry. Excuse me. She is a bank CEO. What makes her less prominent than this other bank CEO that you're quoting that's a man? Mm -hmm. I know. So I, I, I'll give you one experience that I had on mid-journey. And I, my prompt was, um, imagine, I guess that, that's the, the prompt, imagine an what, what does the average person look like in the city of, so in Canada, we have, I, I tried Pickering, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. I tried Waterloo, which is, uh, you know, yeah. Waterloo has Waterloo University. It's a, it's a, it's pretty much a university town. And then I tried Brampton. Brampton has so much diversity uh, in it. That's where, that's where Altitude Accelerator is. So it brought up four pictures in Brampton of one young brown Indian man and three older brown Indian men. Brampton, 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 which has over, from my understanding, over 200, 200 diverse uh, ethnicities. Waterloo, one white <laughs> university person, and then three old white men. Pickering, same thing. Not one woman, not one woman in any of them. But yes, definitely ethnic bias in an area that is one of the most diverse in Canada. So it's, it's not even the people that are famous. It, it, it's almost like this redlining effect that you had, that you talked about where if more than X number of people live here, there is a generalization that's made about that postal code or zip code. And so they tend to use that as a proxy for credit or income. Mm -hmm. like, it's it as is. if we don't exist, right? I don't understand. I, but here's, here's the thing, though. Like, and so we're talking about women in AI. There is... Based on stats, there is a lack of female representation in artificial intelligence. Wired in 2018 said that there were 12% 12, 12 of leading machine learning researchers were women. 2020 World Economic Forum 
Forum found that 26% of data and AI positions in the workforce were also held by women. I saw a, a quote from Sasha Lucioni of Hugging Face, and she said, AI is a very, is very imbalanced in terms of gender. It's a not, it's not a very welcoming field for women. So I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> it's not welcoming because it's very dominant by certain demographics of the population. I think um, Ellen Turing Institute had similar stats, unfortunately. That in the UK, for example, only 22% of data and AI professionals in the UK are women. The scary part was in the 22%. The scarier part is only 8% of researchers that contribute to machine learning conferences are women. 8%. Again, goes back to if this is a space that is going to impact all of us, why are we not bringing more people on board? And I reject the fact that there are not enough women in the pipeline. We've used that excuse too mm -hmm. often now. We have used that excuse too often in our education system that there's just not enough women. I think if we are willing to look beyond the little black book, there are a lot of amazing women. I was just working with one of my favorite conferences earlier this week on their AI track. And I've always been a fierce advocate of bringing more women on the panels, overload them. I don't want just one woman, two women. I want the majority of my panels to be women. I've gotten complaints from people before that I'm discriminating against the other gender. But you know what? There are thousands of other panels out there that you can choose from that will gladly take all men. It's not going to be anyone of mine that I'll be working on. There are a lot of women everywhere. If we are willing to look beyond certain artificially created criteria, if you will. I've mm -hmm. had pushback from people that says, well, you know what? We won't take people, women speakers, unless they're a CEO of a company. Why? Mm -hmm. I won't take this unless there are acts. But thereby you're creating artificial barriers for people that you know it's almost like a chicken and egg isn't it because if they don't have yeah. the exposure to be out there to be quoted to be speaking in conferences they won't get the opportunity to keep going up that doesn't mean that they're lesser than you know their peers it just means that they're not given the right opportunities so why aren't we doing better and it goes back to the word that you just used diversity theater right? Mm -hmm. We are doing nothing more than a diversity theater. So if we are intentional, we can change it. Carnegie Mellon, for example, is a brilliant university that has created a lot of amazing minds, cultivated a lot of amazing people in AI. They had intentionally done a lot of work to bring more women in the space in engineering, just so that it helps level the playing field. Now, I wish my alma mater would have done that because when I was mm -hmm. there, I was like, Three, one of three women in my class. And I don't think that that ratio has changed much. I think there's still 70% men. But it goes to show if you want to, you can bring more women in engineering and cloud and AI machine learning. Absolutely. But I mean, to, to your point about there are not enough women coming in, but that, that also speaks to the criteria of all the, the different schools 
that are using some level of, I don't know, their model to, to pick some of the, the top people to actually enter their university. Mm-hmm. And how, how many of the, how much of that criteria um, is biased against women or biased oh to, yeah, exactly. And I think the, the other part of it is also women in STEM. Why ha- there have been so much efforts to, to bring, you know, science and math to much younger, you know, kids so that they could, they themselves could look at a future mm-hmm. in data science or, or, or math, et cetera, because, because there has been a stigma against women and their ability to even comprehend these complicated subjects. And so when you think about the pipeline, the pipeline has been disadvantaged from the time that, that we were young. And it's the, it's the education system. It's, it's even the bias of our parents, potentially, that have been pushing us to look like a girl, to wear pink, to wear blue, to go and do a thing that's good for you as a girl versus you as a boy. It's been part of our lives. It's our culture, isn't it, right? And, and I can resonate with that so much. I love Legos, in case you can't tell. Um, <laughs> Legos is, is very much a part of our family's life. And I recall, um, I, have a, I have a son and a daughter, and we're fortunate to live close enough to a lot of the museums that, you know, that's one of the pastimes that we do. And when my daughter was little, she was a toddler, I think she was like about two years old. I took her and my son at that time, who was five, to an air and space museum. It's one of my favorite. I loved it. We walked in there and, you know, they always have the gift shop at the end of, you know, before you leave the museum, hey, bring a piece of memory with you. Guess what was on eye level of my daughter? Shelves that she can reach, things that she can see. Stuffies. Hello Kitty, pink Hello Kitty in a little space helmet. That's it. All the other books, everything else were for boys, right? And so it speaks to exactly what you were talking about, Hesse. It, it, it's, it's part of our culture too and how we're bringing children up. We condition them to a certain route as well. And I remember my friends, they would bring me like pink Legos for my daughter. I'm like, what, what is this pink Lego thing? First of all, I don't like pink, but... More so, I did not grow up with pink Legos. I grew up with space Legos, the, the space Lego set, the moon um, base station, all of those. That was my favorite toy. That was for both boys and girls and whatever gender that, you know, you want is not gender specific. So why are we doing this now? It shouldn't have to. It, it shouldn't have to be like, you know, girls play with dolls and Lego that look like dolls and then boys play with everything else. No. Mm-hmm. Because then you are conditioning them, as you say, to a certain point. Exactly. I want to I want to throw out a stat there. Start stat here because when you were talking about earlier about you know who gets to speak, who gets invited to panels, there there was an actual online news database study that actually brought out some interesting stats uh, that said that. This year, men have been quoted 3.7 times more frequently than women in the news about AI in English-speaking nations. When we talk about news that focus on stories 
on science, technology, funding, discoveries, and developments that are centered around women, 4%, only 4% of those news stories. And in Britain and the U.S., 18 and 23% respectively of the news editors are men. And men are between three to five times more likely than women to decide what constitutes a technology story. So there's this foregone, foregone conclusion that unless you are the subject, if you, unless you're a man that's a subject of what we call pervasive interest, more than likely you may not be part of the story. I don't know. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I have a lot of comments, but none of them say for work. <laughs> I will refrain. <laughs> I, it, it, it's, it's the same old, isn't it? It's the same old. It um, is. And, and that's why, in a sad way, if you look at the stats every year that look at, you know, gender gap, that looks, you know, um, World Economic Forum, every year they publish a, a gender gap report, that number has barely moved. Be it, you know, economic disparity, be it, you know, political disparity or just plain opportunity gaps. It's always been hovering about 130 something years. That hasn't changed. I, I think there's an illusion of change, but until such that you can have equal representation at the top, we won't be able to change, at I least not in a meaningful manner. No. I, I, the, the thing is, there's so many systems that need to change, that their, need, their practices need to change. And like the, one, one of the things I, I was speaking to you about before we entered this call was, was about Wikipedia. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, in the age of large language models and where AGI is going to, at some point, you know, be pervasive in all our, all our lives, Wikipedia is one of the, the most scraped sites to be used in large language models. And right now, let me see, where did I find this stat? Okay, 4.5 billion unique global visitors just in the month of April this year, right? One thing that a lot of people may know or may not know, let's, let's just see, um, is that 90% of the editors in Wikipedia are white male and they live in North America, which means that most of the information on Wikipedia has one very particular narrow worldview. And the 10% the remaining editors, 9% are women, and 1% consider themselves non-binary. So, you know, from that perspective, there's a, a colleague of mine, um, Bolha uh, Livinitz, decided to edit Wikipedia, to add more female names and underrepresented names into the list. And we started with the women in AI ethics. And let me tell you, it was a bit of a slog because not only were we outdone by the number of men here, but all these rules that have been created, we, were, we didn't conform to. Like the definition of notable was very interesting. You had to be, your name had to show up in certain magazines. You had to be a Google scholar in order to be considered notable. 
And they didn't know who the person was, but they were, this person was notable in other circles. They basically rejected them. So there was a whole slew of stuff that was happening. And the reason I bring up Wikipedia is that because it becomes an influential database when it comes to AGI. And I think for, for the amount of bias that's already in there in editing and creating content in the space, if it continues to, to be that influential, influential in, in the creation of large language models, then we're all screwed. We are. And, and first of all, kudos to what you're doing. Um, and you need to give yourself a lot of credit, seriously, mm -hmm. for, for pushing the space and almost like rolling up a large stone uphill <laughs> that rolls back down every once in a while and squish all of us. And, and it takes a village, but it makes me really sad because there are a lot of amazing minds everywhere doing a lot of amazing work. The system is stacked up against many of them, not to mention that typically women do bear most of the caregiving um, task. And that's the one thing that I've always said is inequality is a policy choice. If policy is created in such a way with the needs of underrepresented demographics in mind, we would have had a much better caregiving infrastructure. Women would have less time that they will have to spend doing a lot of things, literally like mental gymnastics, just to try to figure out how to get the day through. Caregiving is so expensive, it's hard to find. A lot of employers, they're not really, you know, flexible, et cetera, et cetera. I remember a couple of years ago, I think um, Melinda Gates in one of her books, she said, women on average spend an extra six years in their lifetime just doing caregiving stuff at home. Six years. Imagine what we could have accomplished if we were all given extra six years. You exactly. can have a second degree, perhaps, two master's degree, a year go on vacation, do more work, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, it's every single corner and direction that you look, there is something that is pushing back. And it's, it's no wonder we are where we are. I know. I mean, they, they um, I, I was listening to this podcast about COVID and about the, the amount of time that women were actually spending because there was no caregiving during that time. Everybody had to stay home. They're, they were actually doing twice the work. Yes. Part of that. And yeah. so... The other stats, if you're looking at the, the number of researchers, men had published twice as much as women during COVID because they were at home. They had more to do. Women, on the other hand, who had to resort to actually also playing mom during the day while they were working. And teacher. Well, Mary Go, teacher, did not publish and published probably half of what they normally did during a normal school year. Uh -huh. So it does bang, it does talk about how policy, how things are not changing in favor of making it easier for women to actually um, become productive and contribute to the workforce, let alone AI, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. is the only developed country without <laughs> a paid family leave. So there, there goes that, right? If you, as a woman, and I was lucky, I had three months off. But most people don't, you know, so you have to take off without pay. 
Well, who can afford that, especially with this economic climate, right? And so then you have to figure out, okay, then what do I do with my career choices? And yesterday, my uh, son, actually, he asked me an interesting question. He, he's working on a project in school, in his middle school. And he said his teacher wanted him to come ask me, what is the biggest sacrifice I have made for them in, you know, the last however many years? And I told him, I said, you know, I think the one single biggest sacrifice, and I'll, I'll say it's not just sacrifice, it's a change, was that I quit my job. I quit my job when my son was born because he had a lot of health issues. And I decided that I was just going to quit and stayed home. I stayed home for a year and a half. And he asked me, why did you do that? I'm like, well, because you are the most important thing, right, as a family. And this is what we do as a family. It hurts. It hurts me professionally. It hurts me in pay, but it was worth it, right? So when you look at a woman's life and what they do, the breaks that they take when they have children, and then later on in life, when they have to take time off to take care of their parents, the aging loved ones, grandparents and what have you, because majority of family caregivers are women. So there again, another break. And then throughout their lives, most likely a lot of them will resort to work that gives them more flexibility because again, mental gymnastics of things you need to do. And we wonder, what can we do to change it? And there's mm -hmm. policy, policy change. Yeah. So outside of policy, and I mean, is there something that you and I could do to, to, to make some su substantive change? Like we both write, we both speak. Right? We both have an opinion. <laughs> we both yeah. have, but there's also only two of us, right? So like, what are your thoughts in terms of how maybe women collectively can do things to, to actually change the status quo? I'd say men too cannot be just upon half of the world's population to change the status quo. It needs to be everyone because it impacts everyone. So I'll give you an example. In the last five years, the podcast has been running um, intentionally for this year. I made a huge change. I brought in two co-hosts. One is Barb. Um, she's from Canada. And the other one is Stephanie. She's based in Atlanta. And between the three of us, if you look at um, the cover picture of our podcast, you have a white Canadian, you have me, and then you have Stephanie, who is black, and she's from the islands. And that change was made intentionally because we all have our own bias. We all have our own little black book, and I recognize that. And I want to change that. And to change that, we need to bring in different voices who have different communities, who have access to different resources, who have different opinions, who have friends, who might be from different places, who have different backgrounds. Again, diversity, but intentional diversity. And that's how we're able to bring in a lot of different guests across health tech even, people that I wouldn't have known had it not been because of Barb and Stephanie. And so that's one small change that I believe that People who have a platform can do. If you're running a podcast, I don't care if you're a man, woman, or binary, however, whatever it is that you think you belong, you can contribute. That's the one small thing that you can do. If you're an event organizer, bringing more people from different places, from different sectors even, right? Just because you're running an AI conference doesn't mean that, you know, you can only bring in people that are just, I don't know, have a master or PhD degree in AI. You can bring in different fields because that's the beauty of technology. 
is not just about the people who know how to code, but people who use the technology, people that will be impacted by it. There are so many different verticals that you can think of that I think that's the beautiful thing that we can do together as a community. Yeah, I think the other thing that I would add is that we have to uplift the lesser known voices. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of women who who are, let's say, the go-to influencers. It's just like the celebrities, right? We have to start intentionally building the brands of people who are doing amazing things, but may not necessarily have the confidence or the foresight to be able to deliver their voice mm -hmm. in, in a meaningful way in public. And if we can encourage that, I think we'd have so many voices to choose from. Like it's, it, it's going to be a lot more, um, I guess, challenging for media to say, well, there, there's not enough, there's not enough people who of this, you know, subject matter expert expertise to be able to choose from. And, but we have to create that. We have to create that and we have to be intentional about uh, giving back to others who have helped us um, elevate our own voices. So, and as you told me um, earlier, Twitter is not going to be the space to help us do that. And so we have to move on to the next available social network. Could it be Blue Sky? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've tried uh, almost all of them, but I will, I will say this one thing. Um, and I reflected on it recently too. I did a book signing um, in, in a FinTech event in Vegas. And a lot of people came who showed up and I was very, very grateful for, I was talking to a friend of mine and she was asking me like, who are these people? One of them was someone who gave me a first shot and published my article without knowing me. Nobody knew me at that time. This was like six, seven years ago when I just randomly started writing because God forbid I have an opinion and I'm a woman. So I wrote, I started writing articles on LinkedIn and he spotted one of them. He's like, I would love to publish it in the fintech uh, newsletter. And he did. And then there's another woman, uh, Penny, love her to pieces. She's the editor of American Banker. And again, she reached out to me years ago and said, I would love to bring you on the podcast. She didn't even know me. And then there's, you know, Victor, who's a conference organizer. Um, and at that time, he gave me the first opportunity to speak on stage, even though at that time, my boss told me that I would never put you on stage because you don't know how to speak. Um, that's a whole different story. <laughs> right. So when you think about the trajectory that we ended up on, the path that we are in right now is built upon the shoulders of all of these people who gave us a first shot, the person who put you on stage the first time, the person who published your article the first time, the publisher who didn't know me, who reached out and said, I want to publish a book with you. Like, why? I don't really? What? Me? No. Right? So, so is that. So it's exactly to your point, giving back. We are all in a position that we can give back. Give someone else the first chance. Bring them on. Thank you. I love that. And, uh, you know, that is the, that is the last word that I think is, is going to be meaningful for, for this podcast. And I thank you so much for, for talking with me through this really, I guess, important and difficult topic, because you. as you know, like, like, I don't know, hopefully when I retire, things will change, but my, that's, that's like 
less than 10 years. And I don't know whether humanity is going to have the um, gumption to actually make substantive change within a decade. So we'll see, right? <laughs> anyway, Theo, thank you for coming with me today. And I think that's all we have time for. If you have our audience, if you have any important topics that you'd like us to cover, please don't hesitate to contact us at communications at altitudeaccelerator.ca. This is going to be our last podcast for the holidays. So I wish everyone a safe and happy new year. And you too, Leo, please have an amazing holiday. We'll see everyone else in the new year. Take care, uh, have fun, and be safe. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Bluemax. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.